I read today from, uh, in the words of Paul. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. A friend recently posted this on Facebook. My own? Sorry, I can't always hear myself. Uh, You all wish you had the same problem, right? (laughs) A friend recently posted this on Facebook. Uh, Which U.S. states are the northernmost, the southernmost, the easternmost, and the westernmost? Now, some of you are probably picturing a map in your head already. Some of you are trying to answer the question. Some of you have already tuned out because you couldn't care less. But I got excited because I love that kind of just, frankly, trivia. Uh, So I was uh, really thrilled with an opportunity to show off how smart I was. And now some of you are saying, what a nerd. And you're absolutely right. I got excited at a friend's party when I found out there was going to be a trivia contest. I've been in trivia competitions as uh, fundraisers. My family refuses to play Trivial Pursuit with me. I just, I love this kind of stuff. So I was excited when I saw nobody had posted the correct answers already. So I quickly jumped in and said, northernmost Alaska, southernmost Hawaii, westernmost Alaska, and easternmost is also Alaska. Because as it turns out, the Aleutian Islands spread all the way across the 180th meridian into the eastern hemisphere. I know, super nerdy, right? Uh, so I posted this, and uh, you know, if anybody wants to talk with me and argue the point uh, later, we can, we can chat afterwards. But that is the right answer. <laughs> but my friend recognized someone else as having the right answer for saying that Maine was the farthest east. And I got this little twinge in my gut. 
I'm like, that, that's not right. I, I had the right answer, but I resisted the temptation to go online and post a correction. I did like someone's comments who did that uh, a couple of times, though, so. <laughs> why, do, why do I get caught up in this? Because now I need to go back and find out if he's actually going to correct it and, and acknowledge this other guy and me who were actually right about the answer. It, it's not going to make me more important. It's not going to make my life happier. I mean, even if I'm right, I don't win anything, right? Fake internet points. It's certainly not going to give me joy. Because that's what we want, isn't it? And yet, so often, why do I end up investing myself and focusing on things that don't actually give me joy? And in fact, sometimes do the exact opposite. Promise maybe a kind of momentary happiness of identity or recognition or significance, but actually work against the very kind of joy that God, in fact, wants me to have in knowing him. Any of you ever experience that? Maybe very few of you with trivia, but maybe with something else. You ever feel like maybe joy somehow is kind of elusive? Like maybe it slips away somehow, and maybe we started out all excited, or we could think back to times when, when we really felt this sense of joy, and somehow it feels like it's kind of leaked away. Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in this letter to the Philippians as we start in chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, we could say, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's been said, joy of the Lord is a gladness of heart that comes from knowing the Father, abiding in Christ, and being filled with His life by the Holy Spirit. That's what God intends for us. So has joy slipped out of your life? Is there a fullness of joy that Jesus has promised you? If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing in this series looking at how God shines light into our darkness to reveal the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these words of Paul is where we start to rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, he says, and it is safe for you, or a safeguard, your translation might say. Rejoice, though, is the command that comes through, the exhortation, the encouragement, and we've seen it if you've been paying attention over and over again in this letter. And, and this really kind of shapes all the rest of this second half of the letter. He says, I, I know what i am told you before, I'm repeating myself, but it's important and it's a protection, it's a safeguard for you. And he says specifically to rejoice in the Lord. And, and he's going to expand then on what that means in this passage this morning. Paul is saying it's a safeguard because we can lose our joy. We can try to find joy in the wrong things. And the world we live in, and even sometimes people, will try and point us in the wrong direction. And, and he wants to warn us about that. That's why he says, rejoice in the Lord and look out. Look out. Stand firm. Fight for joy. 
So what does that mean? First, I think Paul is saying here, if you noticed in these, this first section, to fight against legalism. There's a, a legalistic burden that people are trying to put on God's church. Paul says, watch out, be careful. It's always a battle for Jesus' followers. If you know anything of the New Testament, this appears in some form in every one of Paul's letters. Warnings about people trying to add something for us to do on top of what Jesus has done in order to feel like we're good with God. And when he talks about these people, notice he does not mince words. Now, this is not the way we encourage Christians to talk about people generally, but this is about the center of the gospel. And when it comes to undermining the confidence and the joy that we have in Jesus, Paul has some very harsh words. Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, who do we maybe naturally tend to think of as evil? Mass murderers, dictators, tyrants, child abusers. Yes, of course. That's not who these people are. These are religious people. These are people who look very good on the outside. It's not the anti-religious people that Paul says are evildoers here. It's the super-religious people who are working against God's purposes in our lives. They are not just misguided, they are dogs, Paul says. Now, in our context, that may, oh, that, well, they're nice and fluffy. No, that's not what this means. In that context, dogs were wild, mangy scavengers. They were, it was one of the worst things you could call someone. Uh, but because, Paul says, they are taking the focus off of what God has done for you in Christ and trying to put the burden on what you're doing for God. Uh, one of the ways we could define legalism is this. It's, it's essentially substituting rules for relationship. It's saying, I will know that I am right with God if I do the right things, if I have the right things, if I accomplish the right things. And, and then we get on this treadmill of constantly having to do enough and perform enough. Legalism tells you it is Christ plus something else in order to know God's smile, God's approval, God's blessing. So why would we fall for it? Well, for one way, that's the way the world works. You only get what you earn. But it also appeals to our pride, doesn't it? There's something still in us that wants to have something we can take pride in, to be able to say, I did it, I earned it, I deserve it, and I want people to recognize me for it. But it doesn't get us any closer to God. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 3, for we, not, not the people who are telling you to be circumcised, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, there's, there's an irony here. Circumcision in the Old Covenant was the sign of being in relationship with God. It was this physical sign on the body that said you were in God's covenant people. Now, the people here are probably not observant Jews. They're probably Jewish followers of Jesus who were saying, 
to really know that you're right with God, to know that you're part of God's people. You need Jesus, but you also need to keep the old covenant laws and eat only kosher food and obey all of the uh, Old Testament ceremonial regulations. And then you'll really know that, that you're in God's community. And, and the irony here is the dogs was a way that observant Jews described the Gentiles. Those Gentile dogs are people who are outside community with God. And Paul's actually turning it back on these people and saying, no, the dogs are actually the ones who are demanding that you obey the law in order to be right with God. And, and the point is not that circumcision itself was right or wrong. What makes it a problem is that it then becomes putting confidence in the flesh, literally. Like, I have this mark on my body that gives me confidence, and I can know now that I'm right with God. And Paul says, no, you're a part of God's family because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. What Jesus has done. Not because of anything you've done or accomplished. And, and Paul goes on to prove his point with this great litany of uh, things from his own life. He says, uh, basically, uh, pulling out his trophies. If you want to make rule keeping the measure of whether or not you're good with God, I'll, I'll top you all. And so he, he pulls up this resume, this, this list of his righteousness, his assets. I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day. We could maybe say that's kind of trusting in rituals. And sometimes we can trust in rituals. Well, I was baptized as a child. I, I was confirmed. I prayed a prayer. And those things aren't wrong, but you can't trust in them. They're about knowing Jesus. I was of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. There's, there's kind of a trust in his race, in, in his ethnic background. Benjamin was the favorite son of Jacob. Their tribe was the one that stayed loyal to, to the king in Jerusalem, which happened to be in their territory, by the way. And Paul was named originally after one of the first kings of Israel from his own tribe. So, hey, I mean, come on. If anyone's in, it's me. And some people trust in their spiritual heritage. Maybe their background. You know, I've, I've been a member here for how many generations? Or I was raised in the church. And of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. This is God's country. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul had the right religion. I mean, that, that was an asset for him, right? Religion is man's attempt to have a set of duties and obligations that let us know we are right with God. And Paul's saying, I had that. I had the words from God himself, and, and I kept it. I was right. But being part of a religious tradition or a religion doesn't mean you know God. Well, I was raised Catholic. I was raised Baptist. I've been a, a tender for years, but, but do you know Jesus? That's the question. Do you have a relationship with the Father through faith in God the Son? Not based on whatever religion you define yourself as. As to the law of Pharisee, rule-keeping. The Pharisees were so careful to observe God's laws that they put extra rules around God's laws to make sure that they didn't accidentally sin against God. One, one rule, this was great. A Pharisee would not eat an egg that had been laid by a chicken on the Sabbath because the chicken had been working, and to eat the egg meant that you were part of the chicken working on the Sabbath. 
I don't watch R-rated movies. I, I don't eat meat. I always stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. None of those things are wrong. None of those things are inherently good or bad, but none of them make God love you more or make you part of his family. Especially, they can become problematic if it makes us look down on people who don't follow the same rules. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul had quite the resume, didn't he? He was doing it all for God. And, you know, there's a part of me that wants to be known for my knowledge, right? Look at my resume. Look at my educational accomplishments. For some of us, it's look at all that I have done. Look at all that I have given. Look at how I have served. Look at me. None of those things are necessarily bad in themselves, but Paul is saying if you don't fight against legalism, you will end up impressed with yourself, worshiping yourself, putting confidence in yourself. That's what he wants to free us from. And there's no joy in it is what he's saying. That's why we have to fight against it. Because it kills the joy that God wants us to have in Christ. All of it. Paul says people who know God's joy are just the opposite. We, in contrast, we worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We worship by the Spirit of God. In other words, we, we recognize humbly that it's only because God has graciously helped us see that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we are even able to know Him. And, and that gives us this sense of awe and wonder and amazement and hum humility. I'm, I'm grateful and overwhelmed that God would invite me to know Him. We glory in Christ Jesus. Because we don't boast about ourselves. We don't boast about our record. We don't take any glory in what we've done or, or what God has done through us. We want to keep pointing people to Christ. That's what gives joy, isn't it? I'm a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody. People don't need to know about me. People need to know Jesus. Because we put no confidence in ourselves. Because God has made us see how desperately we need him and how radically dependent we are on him continually. And that's what actually brings joy, Paul says. How do you fight for joy? To live by grace every day, every single day. It's a battle to fight against this temptation to take pride in ourselves in all these assets that Paul lists. And instead, to put no confidence in our flesh, to worship because of God's Spirit and to glory in Christ, to remember again it's all because of His mercy that God loves me, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. That's what brings joy, because I'm taking the focus off me. Not because I have the right doctrine, not because I obey, not because I work hard, not because I've given and sacrificed and served, but because I'm God's child by faith in Christ. 
And then that leads to a radical transformation in how Paul views all these assets, right? Rituals, race, religion, rule-keeping, his resume. Those are all the things that Paul thought were valuable, that, that kind of gave him an identity and, a, and security. But he goes on to say, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. It, indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Do you see the words there, gain and loss and count over and over again through the passage? Those are business terms. Those are accounting terms. This is Paul's P&L statement for his life, essentially. He's saying, I've got, I've got all these assets, all these accomplishments, all these things that gave me my life are now a complete write-off. They are losses to me. They have no value. In fact, they are rubbish. Now, the translators are being polite here. This word in Greek is actually a very graphic term for manure or dung. And we know it's that graphic because it almost never shows up in written formal literature, but it shows up a lot in people's letters and in graffiti. Paul's saying, all that stuff, all my achievements, my righteousness, it isn't worth a pile of dog dirt. It's filth. Those things are now actually my liabilities, Paul says. Do you see the irony that the things that had given me value, that had given me identity, security, they are now less than worthless. They are losses. They are write-offs to me. They are my enemies even. If they keep me from finding my identity, my significance, and my joy in Jesus Christ. And I have to fight against valuing them in the wrong kind of way. Now, he's not saying we throw it all in the trash and we go become monks and nuns and we live in a cave in the desert somewhere. But he's saying there is a war that goes on inside our spirits to value things the right way, to prioritize the right things. And, and if we don't keep the right priorities, the right perspective, those things that look like assets will steal our hearts away and kill our joy. So the second thing Paul is saying is I, I need to fight to keep the right priorities. To keep the right priorities. Because look at what Paul says. I have counted it all as loss, as rubbish, in fact, in order that I may gain Christ. In order that I could have Jesus. So my assets now are one to know Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ. Because Paul says, that's my priority. I want to know Jesus. Because it's not always sin, but sometimes it's even righteousness that keeps us from really knowing and following Jesus. All those things Paul was doing for God. And they were the things that made him look good and kept him from Jesus. 
to gain Christ, to be found in Him, I have to let go of anything else that promises me life, joy, identity, security, significance. And there's more than one way that this happens. I mean, it goes in a thousand different directions. And it's so subtle because this is the world we live in. I mean, take money, for example. I mean, some people always want more, right? Because I want to have the nicest clothes. I want to have the biggest home. I want to have the newest car. I want to have the nicest vacations. I mean, those are, those are spenders, right? And then other people want to have money so that, so that we can store it up and guarantee the future, right? We're, we tell ourselves we're being wise or we're just enjoying God's good gifts. But for one group, money gives me pleasure. And for another group, money gives me security if we're not careful. They both look down on each other. Oh, those, you know, wasteful spenders. And oh, you, you know, stick in the mud. Stick a crowbar in your wallet and spend something. Why don't you? But they're both running after money and both prioritizing the same thing the wrong way. And then, and then it's, it's even more challenging because then, then some other people will look down on those people. I'm so glad I'm not greedy like those people. I'm so glad that, that I love Jesus more than money, you know, and if you love Jesus as much as me, you wouldn't live in that house. You wouldn't have such a big bank account. You wouldn't spend God's money on those things if you really love Jesus like I do. Money is still the source of identity. You see how insidious this is, not, not Jesus and not what he's done. That means... Boy, like just in the area of money, for example, with every extra dollar I earn or that comes my way, I, I probably need to be asking myself, is, is this extra comfort knitting my heart to this world and making me love and value what this money can provide for me? Is this extra income helping me find a security and a significance that only Jesus can really give me? Is it pointing my heart toward God in gratitude or away from him towards the gift and what I can hold and have or trust in? I mean, it goes on and on, right? Is this promotion? Is this award? Is this recognition? Is this pointing me towards myself? Is it making me find an identity in other people's recognition and applause and approval? Or is it just another opportunity to praise God and thank him and, and not make a big deal about it? Most of us are at a point in life where we pretty much got life working, right? I mean, we've worked hard, we've saved, we've been responsible, maybe not rich, but, you know, you've got a good life. And maybe you've achieved some of the things on this list, reputation and a resume, and, and, and you, you're living a pretty good life. How are we fighting to not let those things become our priorities? That's the challenge that Paul's putting in front of us because there's no joy in that. It, it sucks the joy out of us. Paul says, all that stuff that, that I used to find identity, security, significance in, once I started to see how it was turning my heart away from God, I could realize it's worthless. It's worse than worthless. And now I'm free. Now I'm free to really have joy, whether, as Paul goes on to say later, whether God gives, it to, gives me more or gives me less. I, I've learned the secret of being content. 
That's what God wants for us. Joyful contentment, free to know real fulfillment that will never come from those things. Because it's actually brokenness and dependence and humility that leads us to joy in Christ. And we run after those things because they're ways of trying to protect ourselves from brokenness and humility and dependence. The good things of this world are less than worthless filth if they keep us from finding joy in Christ. That's what Paul says finally then. That means we've got to fight to keep our focus in the right place. I count it all worthless so that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own but a righteousness from him in faith I want to know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share in his suffering and become like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead Maybe it's kind of an odd question, but one that maybe time to take home and think through. How well do you know Jesus? Not how much do you know about him. How do you much do you really know him? There are people who have been Christians for 10 or 20 or 30 years who know a lot of things about Jesus but may not know him really well. The word in the Greek here means to find out, to understand, to know intimately. The Amplified Bible puts it this way, My determined purpose is to know Christ, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, recognizing and understanding Him more strongly and clearly. You know, I know a little bit about Peyton Manning. I know that he played college ball in Tennessee. I know that obviously he comes from a family of a lot of sports stars. I know that he professes faith in Christ. He's won two AFC championships and, of course, the Super Bowl, for which we're all thankful. I know that he's been very involved with the Children's Hospital at St. Vincent's here in Indianapolis. I mean, I know a good bit of things about Peyton Manning, but I do not know him. I know my wife, Amelia. I've been married to her for more than 28 years now. I know that she likes dark chocolate and she hates feet. I know that it makes her happy when I call if I'm going to be late for dinner and it frustrates her when I forget to put salt in the water softener again. I know what makes her laugh. I know what makes her cry. I know what she enjoys. I know what she avoids. I know her hopes and fears and dreams and regrets. I know her. Because I've spent time getting to know her. Because we've been intentional about getting to know one another and investing in a relationship with each other. See, Christianity is not some duty that we're called to. It's not a set of knowledge to be mastered. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not regulations and commands. It's definitely not about a, a particular race or a political party or, or any of that stuff. If that's your picture of Christianity, what you really need to know is Christ. 
Paul draws a connection here, in fact, if you notice, between Jesus' life and Paul's own life and the life that we end up living. In other words, there's a life of self-denying suffering that all Christians are going to be called on to emulate in some way. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death that I may attain to the resurrection. See, the the reason this was relevant in Paul's day is that taking on these Jewish ritual practices would have protected these Christians from persecution, from social ostracization, because Judaism was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. You had to say Caesar is Lord, but Rome carved down an exception for these weird monotheists in the Middle East and said, okay, you Jewish people, you don't have to say Caesar is Lord. There was no exemption for Christians. So when Christians would have to stand up and say, I cannot say Caesar is Lord. I cannot say Rome is Lord because Jesus is Lord. That meant you were inviting exclusion and persecution and abuse and ridicule and rejection. It's part of the package deal in knowing Jesus, Paul says. To know Jesus, you're putting yourself on a path of taking up your cross and denying yourself and following him. Because the way to go up is to go down. And the path to glory leads through suffering, just as it did for Jesus, just as it did for Paul. You're going to know Jesus, and that means you're going to know his rejection and his self-denial and his dying to himself. But that's not what our flesh wants. And that's definitely not what the world is selling us. Robert Bella, the great American sociologist, said the two great goals of Americans are vivid personal feelings and personal success. And we align all our lives and make all our plans oriented around those things. What will advance me? What will help me and my family? What will provide for my comfort and my security and my pleasure? And we are all deeply influenced by it. All the things that Paul counted as gain, reputation and resume and righteousness and racial identity, those are all ways of limiting, of avoiding suffering. You see, when I have those things, I don't have to suffer. And Paul says, I was a Pharisee persecuting Christians. Life was comfort and recognition and power, but I was dead and lost. And I had to chuck it all in order to find Jesus and be willing to follow him in this path of suffering in order to know him. What are you headed towards? What is the focus or the determined purpose of your life? vivid personal experiences and success, comfort, and pleasure, or eternal joy in knowing Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering so that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, there's just a note here. Paul mentions that by any means possible, making it sound like he's kind of uncertain, 
And there's no doubt in Paul's mind. The only doubt he has is maybe about himself, if anything. I mean, he's reflecting what we heard in Hebrews, remember, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. I mean, he writes to Timothy, if we endure, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul has no doubt about what Jesus is going to do, and he understands that his salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. He has no doubt in God. If any doubt, it's only in himself. But I think what's maybe even more going on here is not presuming on God's mercy and continuing to press on to receive the prize for which God has called him heavenward. The suffering that we go through for Jesus is the path to sharing in his glory. Suffering, resurrection, glory. And they're the things that God is using us to make us like Jesus here and now. That's the other part of it. Following Jesus means obedience and suffering, and that makes no sense to us unless, unless we have realigned our balance sheet to see that all the things that the world counts as gain are actually less than worthless compared to knowing Jesus and having him. If I have Jesus, Paul says, I will gladly suffer the loss of all of it. You can have this whole world. Give me Jesus. That's what I need to remember. When I'm tempted to find my identity, my significance, and you know, having the right answer to a trivia question or the daily annoyances of life, Paul says, I will gladly take suffering for Christ, rejection with Christ, obedience to Christ, and dying to self like Christ if that means I get Christ. Because he's worth it. Are you losing your joy? You feel like your spiritual life is maybe kind of flat and empty. Paul says his ambition, his focus, is to know Christ and be found in him. Is that your ambition? In the middle of everything else, in the, in the middle of life, did he know him already? Of course he knows Jesus. But do you see there's a continuing running after Jesus and knowing him more in the middle of everything that Paul says is what leads to joy now and eternal joy. You never outgrow your need to stay close to God and dependent on him. And how do we do that? We fight for it. We have to get rid of legalistic rule-keeping. We have to quit trying to show off to God and, and to other people. We have to reassess our priorities. What is it that I'm really valuing? And where am I really heading in my life? What is the focus that my life is about? Because when it's about Jesus, you get everything else. If we quit trying to show off for God and everyone else, all those things that, that seem important now will stop robbing us of joy. And in fact, we'll have joy even in the middle of the suffering and the trial because we're doing it with Jesus. And that means we have Jesus. Fight for joy, Paul says. Set your goal higher.
Let me pray for us. Father, we've already confessed, but we come to you again acknowledging how easily we are satisfied and pleased with ourselves, with what this world offers us, and then how that quickly becomes our source of identity and significance and security. Father, thank you that you have something so much greater for us in Christ. We want to know Jesus. Father, maybe there are people hearing my voice who have never put their faith in Christ. Maybe they've been in church for years. Maybe they're baptized as a child. Maybe they've never had any religious upbringing. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us all to see that our answer, our hope, our joy is not in religion, but in a relationship with a person, with Jesus. Father, don't let our accomplishments, our religious pride, our rule-keeping, any of it, stop us from coming to Jesus over and over and over again. We want to know him. We want to have him. Give us Jesus and his joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.